City Lights is a community of faith in Jesus, seeking to equip people to exalt Him and extend His kingdom. This message is from our study through the Gospel of John called Believe, Jesus Changes Everything. If you are encouraged and challenged by this message, please share it with someone, post it on social media, or let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 11. I'm supposed to be in chapter 18, um, but I kind of am in chapter 18 in my mind, even though we're in chapter 11. Uh, and we're in a conversation called Believe, and it is actually Palm Sunday. That's why I'm in chapter 11 and 18 in my mind. Uh, but if you're just joining with us, we teach through books of the Bible. And when you're with us, you'll see that we just read some of those sentences, and then we try to explain what they mean historically. And then uh, after we understand what they mean historically, ultimately the scriptures, the Bible is about God. So we really try to understand what God did, what he said, why he said it for those people. And then we try to understand, with the help of the Holy Spirit, what might this mean for us. So when John wrote this account that we're going through, he didn't write it with chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2. He just wrote out his time that he hung out with Jesus and later on in history, people organized the Bible and put chapter marks and verse marks. And so when I say chapter 10, that's a luxury that we have from organization. But we're really just reading a personal letter of one of Jesus' best friends. Um, John actually is the most feeling-oriented book in the New Testament. And I am all kinds of a feeler on my Myers-Briggs. And I've finally realized why I love John so much. It's because he's a feeler. Um, and I know a lot of you guys, I think the majority of our church are thinkers, which is kind of interesting um, because you have a primary teacher as a feeler, but I am a thinker as well. But that, that's what we're about to look at. It's called Believe, and specifically Palm Sunday is historically Jesus rides in on a donkey that's never been ridden. Uh, that's the scene we're about to pick up. And he enters into the city. It's called Triumphal Entry, and everyone's screaming out Hosanna, which means save us now. They were talking about being saved from the tyranny of Roman oppression in a government that was not godly. Uh, they were wanting for the Messiah, this Jesus, the sent one of God, which is who Jesus was and is, to be able to, to right all the wrongs. But they genuinely, most of the people who were screaming those things out were not saying salvation as forgiveness of my sins. They were saying salvation as in rescue from oppression, rescue from political injustice, rescue from impurity. It was more of a political cry than it was a spiritual, heartfelt Judeo or Judeo-Christian cry of Jewishness or Christianity. And I think for all of us, I'll just go ahead and make this point because it's in my brain right now. I think there's a lot of temptation for us to want a Christianized society or Christianized bookstore, Christianized Publix or Christianized Upstate or Christianized Park. And in some ways, we might be falling prey to the exact same things they were they put their beliefs and they merged them in with uh, the dichotomy of the world and their beliefs, and they wanted to merge those things together, but not in the way that Jesus had in mind. Because Jesus wasn't really trying to become the next president of Jerusalem or Israel or that nation. He was the undisputed king over all nations, over all time. And when people were interacting with him right up close next to him, talking with him, feeling they could have rubbed his hair, they got it wrong. And so I'm not saying that we are prone to get things wrong in that regard, but we certainly could fall prey to the temptation 
of imagining that God is on our side, and if God is on our side, just like Sidney Ann said, if God is on our side, this would probably be what his will is. And, you know, Paul, talking about politics, Paul, when he writes to Timothy, his young disciple, and he sends him to an area called Ephesus, it would be like me sending Timothy, our Timothy, it'd be like me sending our Timothy to Asheville to go and really help that area and help that church. And he actually writes and he says, when you go to that place, you need to spend your time praying for the rulers, the authorities, and the governors that they would have wisdom for how to rule over the government and the economy. You pray for them so that they would be able to rule well and you might be able to live out your faith peacefully. He didn't say pray for a Christian government or that things all become city lightsian or Pauline churchian. He said for governors that they would govern in a godly way. And so all, all I'm trying to say is this front bumper piece into this message is that I'm finding more and more, especially as I travel the world and travel just and just talk to all different kinds of people, that so often, so many un, you know, Sydney, I'm talking about, there's impurities that have gotten into our faith and there's impurities that have gotten to our expectations. And we've, I've seen church, Christianity, and from my perspective, make their stance and their platform on things lesser than the kingdom of God, lesser than Jesus Christ, lesser than relationship and reconciliation with God. Not that other issues don't matter, but the first things have to stay the first things. And Jesus came to seek and save those who were outside and lost. And the church can't afford to get sidetracked by smaller things. But the scriptures are very clear to be praying for all those kinds of people that are there. So when Jesus enters in this triumphal entry or this Palm Sunday, the reason it's called Palm Sunday is because when Jesus was riding on that donkey that had never been ridden down, people literally were grabbing palm branches off of palm trees and they were laying them down so that as the anointed one, the sent one of God, potentially this would be the guy who would, uh, who would overthrow the tyranny in the government. Literally every footstep that that donkey would go was, was stepping on fresh new spots. And some actually who had on, not a jacket like I had on, but like a long outer robe, they actually took that off and laid that down to the donkey. So they were literally paving the way and saying, you, I'm going to build my life. You can build it on me type of thing. Beautiful scene. Absolutely amazing. And we're going to see within a seven-day period, uh, less than seven days, by, by Friday, the people who were saying, Hosanna, some of those voices had turned so much in saying, crucify him to the point where he gets murdered six days later after this hero's entry. I mean, it wouldn't be too different than a, almost like a Super Bowl parade where they're so excited, and then six days later, you hear that the Super Bowl MVP gets crucified because they used their platform for their agenda and people didn't like it. So that's not a perfect parallel, but it's that kind of imagery. It really is that kind of imagery in this situation, which is absolutely stunning. So um, let me read John chapter 11, 33 through 36. When Jesus saw her weeping, this is a scene where Jesus' really good friend Lazarus had just died. Uh, and by the way, the two passages I'm going to read is from Luke and from John. These are the only two times that we see Jesus cry, and he actually weeps, and I'll explain what that means in a moment. That's the passages I'm reading, and it happens around the same time of Palm Sunday. When Jesus saw her weeping, the, brother, the, the sister of Lazarus, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was so deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly 
troubled. And he said, where have you laid him, meaning Lazarus? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And the Jews saw how Jesus wept. And they said, see how much he loved Lazarus. If you weren't here, uh, I don't remember when I taught on this passage but I taught on this passage, and it's, when, you know, this is the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. You know, it's kind of like the, if you grew up in church, it's, if you want, like, bonus points or something. I think churches did that. Like, you get a gold star if you memorize a verse. Like, that's the one you go to because it's two words. Jesus wept. You're like, good, you learned your Bible this week. <laughs> you know, you get a piece of butterscotch or something or a little peppermint. I didn't grow up with that stuff, but I hear about it. Um, Jesus wept is far more than, like, oh, he cried too. The, I, I, when I taught on this, there were professional mourners that you would hire for your funeral. So if, if somebody passed away, so let's just say, for instance, somebody in my family passed away and we were to have a funeral, of course, I'm going to be very emotional, uh, but that can be potentially not embarrassing, but you don't want the spotlight on you. So you literally would hire actually like part of the actor's guild, people who would come and out mourn and out weep and out cry and out wail, everybody. And so they were literally professional mourners, professional weepers. So in Jesus, in this scene, uh, the, the sister of Lazarus is weeping, and the Jews that are there are weeping, and then Jesus weeps. And if you study what Jesus does, it would have been like if we showed up, you'd be looking around and go, who are the professional weepers? Obviously, that guy's stealing the show. This is a lead actor. I bet he's in Hamlet's blah, 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 blah during the week, or he's doing Shakespeare in the park. Today, he's doing a funeral. And this is Jesus. This is the son of God, and he's not an actor. He's literally out weeping everybody. What's stunning, one of the things that's stunning, there's so many stunning things about this, but Jesus, in the next sentence, is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he is so emotionally present and empathetic with those people who had lost this man, that he outweeps every single one of them. Jesus, the son of God, God, just, just that basic, that abstract, that broad. God, your God, if you believe in him, he is a God who genuinely feels with you. And he so uh, is present with you that he literally, when you're about to get loud and crying, he goes louder so that you don't feel embarrassed about how loud you get. When I got married to Jerusalem 19 and a half years ago, as soon as she came in the back of the church, there was a live trumpeter behind me. And what I was told later is they couldn't any longer hear the trumpeter because I was just honking, crying, like, <laughs> like it was really, really bad. And I remember, I, I kind of looked at myself like, what is coming out of me? And my brother grabbed my arm and he's like, it's your day, bro, just let it out. So I was like, I couldn't control it, but like I was not hired. I was just so in the moment. And Jesus was about to raise the dead, three days dead. And first he affirmed the loss and wept and outwept everyone there. The other time that we see Jesus weep is Luke chapter 19. It's right in this same time of Palm Sunday. Luke chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. I'll read it to you and it'll be on the screen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is when he was doing the triumphal entry, okay? This is that scene. And he will be the Lord of peace. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, hey, teacher, 
uh, he was named rabbi, uh, like he was a teacher guy, and rabbi would have been a name for that Jewish teacher. So when they hear people, he's riding on a donkey, and the Pharisees are there, they're very religious, they're not all bad people, but sometimes they were so set in what was, quote, right before God that they got sidetracked to secondary things rather than relationship with God. And Jesus actually condemns him later. He says, you are making it extremely difficult for people to come into my house. It's like they're bouncers. Pharisees were almost like bouncers and gatekeepers, keeping people out of, the heaven, uh, out of God's house rather than breaking down the doors and taking off the hinges and putting them in a burn pile and say the doors are always open because that's what Jesus did by removing that, that brokenness and that, that hostility between us and him. He destroyed all of that. And the Pharisees, in some ways, rebuilt walls and propped themselves up. And so when, he, when the Pharisees, some of these who got distracted by the wrong things and secondary things and about rules and regulations and proving to God that you're something. Those are things they got distracted by. When they heard that people were calling Jesus the king and they were calling him Lord and they were saying that he's gonna bring peace and he's gonna bring glory, they said, hey, Jesus, you need to rebuke. Set him straight. Tell him what's up. Rebuke your disciples. Rebuke the people who've been learning from you, teacher. So, I mean, it's basically like, hey, teacher, these aren't just crowds. These are your students. If they're saying this, you taught them it. So rebuke them. Obviously, they're wrong, right? Is what they're saying. And he answered, and he said, shut up. No, he didn't do that. Sorry, I'm from the West Coast now. He said, he answered and said, I tell you, if these people were silent right here, the very stones around you right now would open their mouths and say the same things. I mean, that's a comeback. Goodness gracious. In verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. <laughs> this, is, this is what's amazing to me. Just again, it's one thing that's amazing about Jesus. Jesus knows because the scriptures tell us that his father told him, delay going to help that, your friend Lazarus. He's gonna die but he's gonna die and you're gonna delay so that my glory and power can be on display. So Jesus waits three days before he gets there. And he's stinky and he's dead and people are not only mourning, but they're also a little bit angry that Jesus couldn't do some sort of miracle there. And before Jesus does that miracle, which he knew he was gonna do, he just outweeps everybody. Jesus is the kind of person who weeps over an individual person. And let me just give you these quick little parallels, just because we're all different learners. We are the church that Jesus sent. So the church that Jesus sent is made up of people who weep over one person. He's entering in to be crucified. He's entering in like a king though, but the king's rule is about to end on the cross. And he has people ridiculing him and like, hey, correct all those people. It's like, oh, I can tell them to be quiet, but you're gonna be really frustrated because all the rocks are gonna go, glory, Hosanna. And that's gonna really freak you out, guys. And the very, I mean, think about that emotional moment. Like, wow, this is special. People are putting their new jackets on the ground and there's palm branches and people are breaking into spontaneous Messiah language, like this ancient way of saying, prepare the way of the Lord, it's happening. Like, wow, it's amazing. I'm seeing my good friends who I've done ministry with and my loved ones. And then the Pharisees show up and they're like, correct them. And I'm like, 
man, you've got it so wrong. If I tell them to be quiet, all creation's gonna start talking. It's gonna freak you out. And the very next thing is, he's, he's going to Jerusalem. This is Passover week. There would have been tens of thousands of foreigners all over the world that could make that pilgrimage would be there. And as soon, I mean, just, do you realize how in the moment you would be and how emotional and challenging it would be to be riding in all the spotlights on you. People are saying, you're the king, Hosanna, glory, heaven. And then you get challenged and then your challenge back is just so Jesus juking. I mean, it's amazing. And then the very next second you pick up your eyes and you see pretty much, you would pretty much see just about every nationality on planet earth that could make it to this area would be there. And Jesus starts weeping. But Jesus isn't weeping because his authority was just questioned as a teacher. Jesus isn't necessarily weeping because the Pharisees are still missing it. He's weeping because the nations are lost and dead spiritually and broken all the way down to the very chosen people of God throughout the Old Testament that God said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show the world what I'm like, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna display my glory with you, Israel, Jewish people. And he looks at all the account of these people and he weeps. The only two times that Jesus, the son of God, weeps. It's right in the same scene. Jesus is a kind of man, and he is God who weeps over an individual person. His heart moves so much that he makes more ruckus and more noise. If you went to a concert or if you listen well enough in here, you'd be like, that one lady was really singing today or that guy was really singing today we would walk away from that moment and go, man, that guy got emotional, didn't he? Didn't he take that too far? None of you are going to be comfortable saying Jesus took the Lazarus tears too far. You'd feel like that's almost sacrilegious to even say that Jesus took something too far. I know, I know us well enough to know that. And you're probably, well, you're of course not gonna say, oh, Jesus shouldn't have wept for all the nations where he was only weeping for the Jewish people and he was only your argument is gonna fall apart so fast when you turn one page of the Bible that he was only crying and weeping for Jewish people. Because his next statements, which is not what I'm supposed to be teaching on, his next statements are proving that very thing. So the church that Jesus sent is a church that weeps for one. And the church that Jesus sent is a church that weeps for all nations. I don't wanna put this in any context of performance or I don't even really want you to do any self-evaluation or introspection because that's already taking one step away. But the heart that is in you, I'm not talking about personality right now. The heart that is in you weeps for one and weeps for all if you are part of the church that Jesus sent. And we are one of the churches that Jesus sent, little c that makes up the big capitalized universal, the church, the bride of Jesus. I think you guys know if you've been here, if you don't know, um, I love art. It's, it's one of my greatest passions and the Lord has brought it back in a resurging way in my life. It's been so fun. Picasso is one of my favorite artists when I was in Washington DC. No, when I was in New York City recently, uh, I was able to see so many Picassos that I haven't seen before, it's amazing. But this is his weeping woman. And if, if you study art, the colors he chose are wrong. <laughs> You're not supposed to put these colors together because when somebody's weeping, they're just, they're discombobulated. 
it, it's like they're not supposed to fit together. And so it's interesting when you think about a weeping person, it is a moment that is uncomfortable. It's a moment of something isn't right. I mean, even look like the chattering at the hand right there. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 an, it's actually, for me as an artist, it's a really uncomfortable piece to look at, but it sums up that emotive situation, that emotive situation, weeping. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, I think it was, it may have been 2010, uh, the Haiti earthquake. This is a, a woman named uh, Cindy Terresme, and uh, that night that I saw the earthquake, one of my good friends was adopting uh, his son from Haiti, and we were really worried that he died in the earthquake. But this woman, this was an iconic image for me, and I painted this that night, and then um, showed it at the church I was at at that time, but her, her little brother died under rubble. That's rubble over here. This is her crying out, and that's a picture of her face, just in case you can't make out what those things are. But to me, this captured a moment. This painting makes me uncomfortable <laughs> because it's capturing one of the hardest moments in that person's life where they're feeling. I, I went ahead and, and started to try to understand weeping and emotion like that, um, and it's very interesting. I think some of us put things in a, a gender specific, like women are more emotional and, and men are not, and women have a greater capacity to feel than men. And scientifically, that stuff's somewhat proven right, and it's also disproven as well. The, the main focal word that I see in Jesus is an ability to empathize. And I'm going to explain the difference of those things in a moment. But Jesus was empathetically connected with individual people and entire nations. And if that statement is true, then the church that Jesus sends, and this church, City Lights, I spent a lot of time with the Mormons when I was in Utah, so I keep wanting to say the Church of Jesus Christ, but they'd be like, yes, we got you, it's good. Uh, and I love my Mormon friends out in Utah. Like, if, if you guys make a comment about a Mormon, you better have spent a few days with them and get to know them before you make comments about them, get, spend some time in their shoes. But Jesus was empathetically connected with people and with nations. And so his emotion rose out of that place. And so the church that Jesus sent and this church, it's not a forced thing. It's going to be the natural fruit of our heart that when we hear about somebody weeping, that we would weep with them. I don't know how many of you guys, I did. I know I saw One Sweet Family, we were um, marching together yesterday in the uh, March for Life. I, don't, I think you guys know, but Jerusha and I went to the high school in Parkland, that was where we went to high school, that's where we graduated from, where the shooting happened, and um, so I was prepping for the sermon yesterday, and I got five minutes into prep, and I, I heard about that march, and so I went and marched. I actually went and marched because I heard there were anti-protesters, and I've been around anti-protesters, and they're, they're very hurtful, so it was kind of my um, goal to be a little bit of a, a buffer but I was very grumpy when I went because I was still tired. So it was, I was, it, I'm glad I'm here today instead of somewhere else. But um, my, my point to you is there were hurting people there and to sit with them and care for them and protect them from people who were making other things the topic was so important to me. It didn't even matter what I believed about any of that. I just wanted to be with the hurting and just care for them. And I, and I don't think that's a personality trait. I think that's what Jesus would have been doing. And, and that's why I went. Um, you know that, uh, you guys know Apple. I'm, a, I'm an Apple guy. I'm a Mac guy. As an artist, I just feel like Apple computers are way more intuitive, intuitive and uh, they just they kind of help you along the way. 
Uh, I didn't know this though. So Apple in the 1980s, one of their mission statement, their goal was we need to learn to empathize. That was actually, listen to this statement. I think, I, I think we have it on the screens. Look there. He, he's passed away, but that's a great iconic picture. Apple computers described empathy as the fundamental principle of their brand DNA in the early 1980s. Isn't that crazy? The Apple marketing philosophy and internal memo stated that Apple would truly understand customer needs better than any other company. Now, that doesn't mean they were just trying to understand the consumer. They were literally trying to get in the consumer's feet, in their shoes, to understand, to actually feel and think with them. And a lot of times, people will try to get in your shoes to tell you what to think. Apple's goal was, let's try to figure out, you know, and it makes sense. I think those computers and their software is intuitive. It's thinking with me in that regard. That just blew me away. I was reading um, a bunch of psychological articles because I was very curious what science has found out about empathy. And listen to this. Empathy is the bedrock of intimacy and close connection. In its absence, relationships remain emotionally shallow, defined largely by mutual interests and shared activities. I could go ahead and put in a parenthesis there as a descriptive of a lot of churches in our world that we just kind of agree with some certain things, but we're not getting down and actually experiencing with one another real, serious, shared life. So I continue to study this, and here's what I found in my, my just reading article after article after article from the science world, that empathy is, is uh, it's a muscle in the brain. It's a part of your brain. And so I, I want to say to some gentlemen in the room, um, some of you go like, oh, I'm just not empathetic, man. I'm a doer. I get this done and get that done. Just wait till you hear what I'm about to say. <laughs> you don't want to say that again, I promise. Let me show you this, this brain scan real quick. Psychopaths' brains aren't wired to show empathy, <laughs> study finds. I found so many of these articles, and what they did is scientists went into prisons where people have committed heinous crimes, and they presented them with other crimes that were done, and they did brain scans and asked them questions, not just on their verbal, but they studied their brain. And the part of their brain that produces empathy did not function. It's inhumane, not just unchristian, to lack empathy. In more simple terms, it's inhumane and unchristlike and un the church you sent to not go and try to understand somebody else where they are at and, and shut your mouth from trying to convince them of the things that you hold as a priority. Just listen, understand. If you watch Jesus, he, he did it in a lot of different ways, but he always got to that point with people. And frankly, you have the Holy Spirit and the mind of Jesus in you, so you very well can do those same things because you're the church Jesus sent. And part of the greater things that Jesus had in mind is that we would go throughout the whole world and be little Christs. Actually, the, the early church was called little Christ because they're like, these people look like that guy. Not that Jesus was like seven foot tall, but they were just saying, you know, he's the son of God and we are his, we're the children of him. Are you guys following me? This blew my mind. And so, uh, show the big brain scan. These are all criminal minds, uh, brain scans, and I wish I had my laser pointer, but it's like right, right around there that the empathy firings happen. 
here's the other thing I realized. Empathy, I do think there are spiritual gifts of empathy, I will say that, because uh, some of you have that in this room. And the reason I would call it gift is because you don't even need to know somebody, their name or anything, and you have experienced their pain and suffering they're going through. And some of you have come and said, hey, is somebody in the church dealing with this, this, this? And I said, yeah, her name is XYZ. And, they, and I go, and you just exactly said what they're going through. And that person said, well, I've just been praying. I don't know who that person is. That's a gift. But let's remove that for a moment. Let's put it over there. Every single one of you has a brain that functions with an ability of empathy. And it's a muscle. So every other scientific article I read said that empathy can be developed and learned just like a muscle. But do you know how you do that? Like, I'm not in shape. You know why? Because I don't go to the gym. Now, if I go to the gym, there will be fruit from that. So my empathy function in my brain, which is part of the way that God's wired humanity, which is what we see, Jesus's empathy is on display because he flexed and worked on that muscle. It's just a simple part of the beautiful structure that God's given to us, that he gave us this divine ability to be okay to outweep everybody over race issues and over death and over poverty and over anything, over one individual that would cause you to be weeping and crying and over an entire nation. For some of you, I don't have time to tell all these stories, but for some of you who heard I was gonna go out west for a sabbatical for as long as I could, um, one of my wishes that I'd be able to stay with the Navajo uh, Native Americans and just watch what they do. And it was just a pipe dream of a wish. I ended up staying on the Navajo reservation. If you know who Rich Mullins is, I stayed in the house that he lived in. And not only did I get to do that, but I was also able to have breakfast with the president and vice president of Navajo Nation. And then when I was leaving, I was able to be, I, I, they asked me to do an interview and I was broadcast to the entire Navajo, <laughs> the whole nation of Navajo. So I'm literally getting in my car driving to Utah going, well, I guess that kind of happened. That was fun. And I, I couldn't help but think, God is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. And all I said is, God, can I just stay on actual soil with actual Navajo? And just let me give you a little foreshadowing. We just celebrated African-American Appreciation Month, which we always will do in February. November is Native, Native American Appreciation. And we're bringing Navajo from New Mexico to be our speakers that month. I'm so stoked. And that all just happened because I want to go wander the desert. And all I was like, God, can I just want some real dirt and all? And he's like, eh, we're going to do a little more than that. It was amazing, stunning. Empathy is not an option, but it is something we're going to have to work at, all of us. And I mean that in a positive way, but it's part of the things that God's given you on board so that we can do this. Brene Brown contrasts empathy and sympathy. Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. You might go, what do you mean? Well, one of the things I heard at that protest yesterday, um, you know, it, it, was, it was actually the largest protest I've ever seen in our city, uh, like attendance-wise. One of the things that they were making really clear, the students, is one of the reasons I went, because it was all young people. I just wanted to support them for trying to stand up for something because they don't feel safe at their schools, which you can have all sorts of gun perspectives, but when you hear a child say, I don't feel safe going to school, I don't know why you make arguments 
for other contexts when they don't feel safe going to school. I don't know what that's like, but I'm listening to them and I'm going, I need to understand. One of the things they said a lot yesterday was thoughts and prayers from our government aren't doing anything. What they were saying is the sympathy offered from our government isn't helping. We need somebody to feel what we feel and make a decision. And this is, you guys know me, I'm not making political statements, but as I was listening yesterday, I go, is this what you're saying? They're like, yes, that's what we're saying. We're sick and tired of the sympathy. We want someone to actually understand. And Jesus is one who understands and the church that's sent by him is one who understands. So empathy, I would say, in the church at large, this is somewhat of a prophetic statement, meaning looking at the, the nations of the world, I would say empathy is an underdeveloped muscle in the church sent by Jesus right now. It doesn't have to be. One of those great things about, you know, when you go to the doctor and they say, hey, you have this and this, you go, oh, okay, I need, I need to really focus on those things. We're not gonna try to make ourselves better, but we're more aware, hopefully, after this message that it's right to weep over one and it's right to weep over nations. And, and it was right for, when I was doing that broadcast, it's interesting, the only thing I wanted to say was, would you please forgive the white-skinned man for taking your land? Because one thing I learned when I was with the Navajo is, uh, it's the closest thing I've ever heard when I sit, spend time with my African-American friends. It's the closest thing I've ever seen to that. Um, but the evil that's happening on that reservation, uh, their deities, is, it's terrifying. And my heart wept for them. And being in their shoes, all I could say on that interview is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wouldn't have been able to say that unless I went and spent time with him. Empathy rose up and it spoke. So the church that walks in God's presence, the church that walks in God's presence is the one that's developing an empathetic muscle which weeps over individual people and weeps over entire nations. Um, Timothy, are you still in the house? Oh my goodness, it's 1136. Band's not coming up, sorry. I apologize. <laughs> Last time I looked at the clock, we were doing good. <laughs> Maybe, maybe this is the question we could consider moving forward. Um, maybe the question we should consider more often isn't where am I going, but who is going with me and who am I going with and for. Um, I'll just show these last pictures as I share these last thoughts, and then I'll close in prayer. I mean, we're just two minutes away. Um, so I, I, I think I went to around 15 or 16 national parks while I was out west. It was just such a pure joy for me. I found myself literally out laughing everybody, but there was no joke being told. I just was that filled up with just glee. Um, and I wasn't embarrassed, it was fun. I'm sure just somebody walking in the Grand Canyon going, ah! <laughs> it was normal, but at least it was for me. But here's what's interesting is I look at my pictures, here are the ones I'm looking at most. This is Matt, uh, that was Matthias, he's from France. And uh, we met in the southern rim of the Grand Canyon, and we've talked every day since. We've been talking now for about 15 days. He's coming back to the States um, to come to Greenville because uh, we just had such a good time together. And so he's, he's going to be coming here. Um, he's become a, as good of a friend as you can in 18 days. But we would literally send pictures of everywhere we went because we, we separated ways after the Grand Canyon. But... It wasn't just about going to the Grand Canyon, it's who you're with at the Grand Canyon. And this next picture, um, this is, uh, as my 
Native American daughter tells me, ooh, that's one of my people, is what Alexandria says. And when I told the Navajo that I adopted a little girl from Cherokee, they just were so excited. And this woman was helping me pick out jewelry that she made to give to my daughter. And uh, she wanted to take a picture so that my daughter could see what her people looked like. And she was so excited. It's not just going to Navajo Nation. It's being with the people right there. And that's at the president's office right there. Look at that background. That's not like craftsmanship. God did that circle right there. That's called Window Rock. That's where the capital is for Navajo. So maybe the question isn't, you know, where am I going? It's who am I going with? And the next picture, um, this is on top of a, a hike in Zion National Park. And this is called the Angel's Landing. Um, and, you know, if you're interested in some of this stuff, it's known as the scariest hike in the North America. So it was like one hike I was definitely going to do. Um, I, did I send a picture of a chain? Did I send that to you? Well, that's, that's at the peak. These are three girls that I met on the way up the mountain this sweet one right here gave up after 500 uh, feet of elevation, and I took my earbuds out for a moment, and I heard her saying she's going to give up, and so that one was Miss Independent, and she literally took off, and I, I overheard, and so I was just like, some, I wasn't creepy, I guess, because we all hung out, but I was like, hey, I'll, I'll help you get up the mountain, um, but instead of me going up and experiencing something that was so personal and enjoyable, I ended up spending the entire day with them and helped them get to the top, and so um, with, without each other, they were done. So it's not just where you're going and what you're about, it's about sitting with somebody and being empathetic and caring for them and helping them get to the summit so they can appreciate those moments as well. Last but not least, this is a sweet little stinker. Um, when I went to Utah, I only spent time with Mormons and I stayed in a Mormon's home for um, four days. And all I did is learn about Mormonism. Um, to me, church, if the church is going to be the church that Jesus sent, I don't know how we're not staying in Mormon's homes and making a choice to stay in their home rather than in a hotel. And these are practical examples. I'm not telling you to go do these exact things, but I just... It was about the Grand Canyon. It was about Zion National. And it was about all those things. But it, it's, it's the people. It's the people that matter. Grand Canyon was awesome. Grand Canyon with Mattias was indescribable. Angels Landing, there's a chain that's, that goes up the middle of it because there's about, uh, in some cases, 12 inches. And then there's a 1,000-foot drop. I took a picture of the sign. It just shows people falling off the mountain. It says, very dangerous. I'm like, let's go! That was fun, but helping people, literally carrying people at times, literally carrying them to help them get up the mountain. Oh, it made it so much better. Being in Utah was one of the most beautiful states and place I've ever been in my life, but playing with her every day for hours and hours instead of being in the national parks was better than being in the national parks. People matter. And I just want to lovingly commission you and say, hey, people matter to you too. And if they don't, just say, Holy Spirit, let's get that empathetic neuron firing going. Come on, let's do this. And he's doing it. I just want to commission you out of this place and say, hey, you are the church that Jesus has sent and you're the church that Jesus is sending. And in Jesus' name, I send you with not only the power of God, but may the presence of God move through you 
And may you potentially this week find yourself out weeping, out celebrating, out helping everybody else, not to prove something, but because the life of Christ lives in his church. City Lights, you are sent.